I'm always looking for, you know, the angles of the guy who's cutting. I'm looking for like how well the screens were set, if any, if any were set, uh, the timing of, of the cuts, like did the guy go too early and that's why he got in the way of somebody and they had to completely break that off. Um, you know, those are kind of like the checklist you kind of go through and just sort of be in the moment and watch sort of frame by frame um, as it unfolds. And it becomes more clear the more you do it, obviously. We are pleased to have Coach Nick, founder of the unbelievably popular YouTube channel B-Ball Breakdown on the pod today. Um, he's been breaking down NBA games with slow motion, freeze frames, bunch of different technologies and tools for the last eight plus years. Um, he has over 20 years of professional experience coaching players at all sorts of levels in basketball. So welcome to the pod. I mean, we'd love to get started with like just a little bit about you. So if you don't mind Tell us just a little about your backstory, um, how you got so immersed in the world of basketball film analysis, and kind of when you decided to go full time with the basketball breakdowns on YouTube. Sure. Well, you know, thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for asking a question where I get to now speak for a bunch of minutes. I think to try and answer all that. Um, I suppose if you want to go back to the beginning, I mean, I was a, I was a pretty good player. I played on a good high school team and um, kind of wanted to play in college, was a, a good enough to be a Division three player. But then I visited the University of Wisconsin and fell in love. And I went there. And so I ended up becoming a basketball manager. And that kind of exploded my, my uh, basketball IQ because for the two years I was a manager, the head coach was, uh, was Stu Jackson, who was an NBA coach. And uh, the assistant coach was Stan Van Gundy. Another assistant was Sean Miller, who was at Arizona for a lot of those years and a host of other really great coaches. So I got a chance to just, you know, um, sort of stand the sidelines and be in the meetings and really just listen and learn how to do, uh, you know, uh, uh, everything in a, in a D1 program and then what the skills were needed to master all these different things. So uh, from there, I, I started, you know, I went back to my old grammar school for a year. I went back to my old high school for a year after that, you know, coaching the ninth grade team. Um, and then I kind of, uh, I, I was always working on films and commercials. I was going to be a filmmaker. And so I moved out to LA from Chicago out from, uh, to do that, uh, post-college, a couple of years out of college. And, um, even though I was writing screenplays and I was, you know, I was acting and doing improv and all sorts of things, I kind of always recognized I was much more passionate about the pickup games that I was walking out of, um, you know, than I was anything else I was doing. And I kind of ignored that pull for a long time. And then finally, you know, around 2010, um, when, oh, by the way, I'm skipping a whole other part. So I was working on films, I was working on commercials. That was kind of getting to be tedious as well in the late 90s. And so next thing you know, I started like, you know, teaching. And next thing you know, from there, I was interviewing for an assistant varsity job at a big high school uh, with a guy who became like one of my best friends and mentors. Um, and I ended up, you know, as his assistant, I, I ran the JV program for several years and then took over one year at the last year, the fourth year I was there when our, my head, the head coach, uh, stepped down right before the season started. So, um, you know, at that point, one big step was, you know, I had a lot of the D one knowledge from being a manager, um, and then my own experience being a coach for a couple of years, but then we decided, uh, this, my mentor let me bring the triangle offense in because he'd always been looking for a good offense to run. And from there, uh, that was right when uh, Phil Jackson took over the Lakers the first time and we were in L.A. So we were able to kind of go down to the original summer league in, in uh, Long Beach at the Pyramid, grab Tex Winter, who invented the darn offense and literally like pull him aside and say, hey, we want to run this. Can you help us? And he became another mentor of mine for several years. 
Um, and so that was a whole other, you know, dive, which actually led me to a really important part of what I think is, co is the coaching basis is the history of the game. So I really did a deep dive and became basically like a historian of the NBA or of basketball itself. And really just tried to study what the tactics were back then, what the training re regiments were like back then, the coaching styles. And, um, that really, I think helps you as you progress as a coach now to kind of develop, um, you know, the fundamentals of what really is important. So anyway, at that point, um, I took a hiatus after I was, uh, after that fourth year of uh, being with JB coach. And then I took over that program for one year. And then I came back to that same school in 2010 to, uh, to actually be the head coach. At the same time, I had just launched B-Ball Breakdown, which was at the time in 2010, you know, on YouTube, you had these internet stars who were making six figures, just being goofy in front of the camera. And um, some of those guys actually might even still be around, believe it or not. And uh, so we, we decided to kind of re reverse engineer what we had learned from those people um, and try and launch a channel in earnest that would then, you know, be, be successful on purpose. Uh, none of the suggestions worked, uh, by the way, because um, a lot of it were like, it doesn't matter what it looks like, doesn't matter what it sounds like, just throw it up there and, you know, people will flock. Well, when you're talking about sports, you talk about the NBA, uh, the, the, the production quality needed to be at a pretty high level. And that's when we noticed as I bumped up from, you know, standard definition to HD was a big one. And then I changed the background behind me when I was talking to the camera. That was another big one. So all of a sudden, that's when, you know, there was a big, you know, growth spurt is because they realized, oh, this looks a lot more like what I'm seeing on TV. And uh, at that point, I was doing both. I was I was a head coach of a, of a big high school program. I was running the b-ball breakdown at the same time. Both of those things were kind of struggling a little bit after a few years because of, you know, the focus was kind of being split. And so the day I stopped coaching was the day that b-ball breakdown blew up around in 2013. Really, I went full time and it really started, you know, uh, growing and growing. And then from there, I mean, it's a straight shot to, you know, 2022, where, uh, you know, it continues to grow, the influence continues to grow. And uh, I, I can tell you my basketball knowledge has, I mean, I, I don't even want to watch anything from back then, because I would be embarrassed to, to see, you know, how, um, uh, how suboptimal the analysis I think was back then, even though I thought I knew a lot, and I did know a lot, but I, I know a lot more now. So it's, it's gotten a lot better. And uh, I think people have responded. No, I think we feel the same way when we listen to old episodes of our podcast. We're like, why are we saying that? But yeah, I mean, you, you've been a pivotal part of just, you know, on Twitter, just scrolling, seeing your breakdowns on YouTube, seeing your breakdowns. It's really interesting and definitely helps add, you know, although we're kind of, we're not, we're not casual viewers, but you know, we're not nowhere the level that you are. It still helps add to our, to our knowledge and repertoire. So, you know, really thank you for, for being that pivotal part of our sort of basketball journey. And honestly, I wish we would watch you sooner. Maybe it would have been better. Maybe we'd have been better in high school playing basketball, but. Well, that's why I coach uh, yeah. because I didn't get the kind of coaching that I try and give other players and whether it's just my weird, you know, sense of way of uh, assimilating information. Uh, I, I guess the figure if I do it the way I would understand it, then everybody would understand it. Mm -hmm. And if you're like a different kind of, you know, or a better kind of learner, then you'd get it anyway. So let me, help everybody or as many people as possible so thank you that feels great to hear uh and i and i get that a lot it's really nice and that's why we do this why i do this is because i want people to understand the game better um and and it's i think that's the other thing that really made it explode was that the, you know the tagline is it's not a channel it's a conversation um i would respond you know, you watched ESPN for, uh, you know, 30 years and, you know, they'd be talking at you. You couldn't say anything from the couch and whatever they said went. 
And even back then, they wouldn't respond on Twitter. Like none of those people who had Twitter accounts would ever respond to anything. So I responded. And I think that's really what also ignited the growth is because people are like, oh, let's let's discuss this. Let's figure this out. I will let you know if I agree or if I don't agree and all those things, you know, which makes the Internet such a nice place. <laughs> it really uh, it certainly helped the uh, the growth. No, for sure. And I, again, appreciate that you respond because I think also you responding and having those conversations, we learn a lot from it as well, right? That that's, I mean, I think you said it exactly. So uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, th those film breakdowns that you're real popular for. So hypothetical scenario here, you're given a play or a couple sequences of plays to break down. How do you approach that from scratch? How do you approach breaking that down just for some of our viewers that, you know, aren't familiar with your work or want to know how they can start breaking down plays to really analyze what's going on? Sure. Uh, I mean, I, it's funny. Yeah, this always people always ask me this. And it's at this point, it's gotten to be like the Matrix when you're watching all that stuff going on the screen like, and you can see like people. Um, for me, I, I suppose it's like I, I look at the offense first. You know, I look at the uh, so as the ball is coming across half court, for instance, I'm like, OK, where are the other four players? And what's the alignment? That, that's usually the first checklist in my brain, right? So is a, are they running horns? Are they running pistol? Are they running 21? They all, whatever version of offense that we see, spread, pick and roll, whatever. So that's one thing. Because remember, there's two sides of this coin. There's also the defense. And so a lot of times you might get stuck, like if I'm doing a, a, a breakdown um, and it's like a, it's two game, two teams playing each other, like maybe I have to assume the role of like the coach of the one team. You know, so I kind of only look at it through the lens of, okay, I'm looking at the offense here and how they're whatever uh, they're executing versus what the defense is doing, um, you know, and then, or, or vice versa, depending on what we're trying to, you know, figure out here. So I think when I'm breaking down the footage, I, I first look at the offense, what the alignment is. Um, and then, you know, it's like the uh, DVR is a fantastic invention for coaches because I'm constantly jumping back and on my computer, I have it going to my computer so I can jump back like only like four seconds or three or much, you know, tighter. So I like to see like footwork is another big one where I'm always checking like, oh, wait, was that a travel? Was that not a travel? Which gets kind of granular, but um, certainly people love to talk about that on Twitter <laughs> at the very least. And, um, you know, and at that point, it's like, what, what is leading to the ultimate results? And, you know, usually you're kind of coming at it because you know the result, the guy scored. Okay. Let's kind of reverse engineer this, figure out, okay, what were the, all the things that led up to that? So I, I'm always looking for, you know, the angles of the guy who's cutting. I'm looking for like how well the screens were set. If any, if any were set, uh, the timing of, of the cuts, like did the guy go too early and that's why he got in the way of somebody and they had to completely break that off. Um, you know, those are kind of like the checklist you kind of go through through and just sort of be in the moment and watch sort of frame by frame um, as it unfolds. And it becomes more clear the more you do it, obviously. And then and then you just start to develop certain concepts that you recognize as patterns that are good and bad. And then I have no problem calling them out every once in a while. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong and I'm totally off on that. And I certainly heard sometimes NBA coaches will let me know. Uh, and that's uh, that's another one of those things where you have to be concerned about um, you know, uh, with great influence comes great responsibility because uh, certainly a lot of these coaches on these benches, like they have families and they they don't want to be cast in a negative light. And uh, I think I've kind of tempered a little bit of my uh, analysis, you know, with that in mind now, because, you know, I, I mean, I've heard I've heard from uh, coaches on the on NBA benches say like uh, owners would like kind of barge into their room and demanding why they're not running horns, you know, strong corner, blah, blah, blah. And the coaches like who talk to me, it's like there's only one way they'd have any idea what that is. They don't, they don't really know it, but they've heard something about it, most likely from me. And so um, I've been a little bit more, um, you know, sort of 
careful or, you know, uh, whatever that word is, as I've evolved into, you know, something else um, to, to not like, you know, completely burn down the house uh, as I'm doing all this analysis. That said, I'm about to release a video <laughs> where I'm going to burn down the Miami Heat's bench, uh, you know, a couple times. And um, and hopefully that, that Coach Bolster won't won't be too upset. But like maybe maybe it's a learning experience for everybody and, uh, and they, they won't make the mistakes that we saw against the Bucks. I mean, bench. That's interesting. I feel like throughout the year, they've been pretty solid as a unit, especially given all the injuries swapping in and out with, you know, Butler being out for a while, Bam being out for a while. So I'm surprised. Like, I'm looking forward to that. But anything. About oh, yeah. That? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you, you know, one of the things that was head scratching was they, you know, they call out a bounce play. They're up by one. There's 13 and a half seconds left and the Bucks have to foul and they clear everybody out of the backcourt. And so the, the notion is, OK, Jimmy's going to be able to go get the ball. But when you do that, it allowed, you know, uh, Giannis to come free uh, to uh, you know Rome over there, knowing he's got three players that are so far away from the ball. That's not they're not a threat. And then it became a jump ball, which became the, the game winning shot. Uh, I mean, that was just one of the things. And, and it was the second time he had tried doing that same kind of play. Um, and it's, and apparently they do that sometimes with that, where they clear everybody out and you only have one option to throw the ball into. And that just kind of always makes me, gives me the willies when I see that. Cause you know, you you only have five seconds to inbound the ball. Um, so, you know, and there's a bunch of other things that were kind of crazy. And then by the way, on the other side, the bucks who drive me nuts every, and you know, the bucks are well, you know, aware of my issues with their defense. Um, and we displayed, I'll, I'll break that down in the video today too, where, you know, they, they, they like to give up open threes. And they've consistently given up the most wide open threes in the league for years. And um, if you track the defensive ratings year over year, it's been getting worse and worse and worse as the league is kind of adapting to that. And also, um, I kind of think that, you know, if you're going to leave a guy open because he's not a good shooter and the analytics will tell you that um, he's probably only not a good shooter because there's some sort of defense on him. And when you let him be wide open thinking he's not a good shooter, well, they're going to make more than you might expect. And uh, that's the, that's the, 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 the problem with this strategy. And uh, it's, I think it's, they're slowly learning that this is the issue. Oh, I Actually mean, super interesting. What you just said, I don't, I feel like teams never considered, maybe there needs to be a stat of like wide open three percentage versus being guarded. Maybe that well, would help people out. Well, here's the thing they're, they're They have that, you know, second spectrum tra tracks all this and has predictive software where they know in, you know, of, of the hundred shots that that player has taken from that position with, you know, the defender this far away, you know, they know what the percentage is. Um, I, I just, I have to think that as we move along forward, you know, in time and as players are just getting better at shooting, you know, um, it, it changes that calculus and, you know, it, the, the tracking isn't going to be perfect because, you know, which direction did the pass come from, right? Or, or what did he dribble before it? Or, I mean, the defender might not be near him, but maybe he is putting his hands up and distracting and he's not, you know, there's a little bit of a variability there that isn't, is never going to be factored in properly. Um, you know, and why did he miss a couple extra ones? Was it because the, you know, uh, is it the time of the, of the game? Is it the other players with him? Was the pass a little off? You know, the, I saw a study that said something like, you know, if you throw a, an off-target pass where the guy's got to like bend down to pick it up and then try and shoot it, his percentage plummets like 20%, maybe more. Well, think about that. If you're a 30% shooter and you get a bad pass, then you basically are zero. Let's say, you know, let's say it's 25% dip and you're 30%. Well, if you get a good pass, you're probably a little high, you know, that goes up and they don't have any way to track that as far as I can tell. And so that's the issue when you kind of think, oh, I figured this out and we've gotten the numbers and the analytics that are going to solve all of our problems. 
And and by the way, look, we're the number one defensive rated team, you know, for two years in a row, which is what the case, you know, three and four years ago. So it kind of seems like it works. Um, it ain't working anymore. And they're now like they're, they're, they're as low as they've been since the Jason Kidd era in the defensive rating rank. And um, it's it's probably the biggest reason why you watch a team like the Bucks, who are the reigning NBA champions. They're, they don't have that same luster. They don't have I don't feel like they're a champion level play right now. And um, and that's that's, you know, so that's, so that's the constant battle you have when you're talking about looking at footage and looking at the numbers, which I love. I love all the numbers, but there's a very specific way to use those numbers. And sometimes strategically, they there's a, there's some fallacies there. I mean, it's really nice to hear you talk about analytics, because I think for a lot of especially like older heads, like they'll say, oh, no, the eye test is what matters. Like we care about, you know, like what we're watching on our screens or what we're seeing live. Like I do think analytics plays such a big part in terms of figuring out, you know, player hot zones, like where players operate best on offense, where they position best on the defensive side. And with regards to analytics, trends, statistics, like what's one of your favorite trends that you're seeing in today's game compared to previous decades or like older basketball styles? And for part two of this, what's something you want more teams to do moving forward? Ah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, trends, I suppose, you know, I mean, the funny thing is, is as a basketball historian, and I, and I love watching the games from the 40s and the 50s and how they used to run offense, you know, a lot of the things like the Warriors do, for instance, are right out of that, you know, the guy, if Bob Pettit got, you know, got young again, and got back on the court, like he'd be able to run their offense because they're doing the same things, but the the individual skill level is is exploded to such a degree that all of a sudden those actions work even better than they ever had, and it makes it even harder. And it kind of shows you the genius of the original coaches of basketball. These guys developed the low post split that you see. You know, you see that from the from the original Celtics in the twenties and the thirties, and now you watch you know Draymond and Clay and, and Steph run it. And, um, and you realize that like there was a genius to how they understood uh, a rectangular court and angles and spacing and how you want to attack. And there's, you know, there's probably some soccer stuff that, you know, that you can extrapolate as well, that they might have done as well, or even football. But there's a lot of um, there, there's, I guess, a finite way of attacking, you know, on a rectangular court or I guess maybe more of a square when you're talking about the half court. So um at any rate, so, you know, the things I love to see are all the old school stuff, like all the handoffs, like dribble handoffs are my favorite dribble pitch. Um, and, you know, we're getting so much of that now where it was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the domain of the Spurs for a while only. And the other thing that we see on an individual uh, level is the attack on the catch. So I kind of, you know, will will um, troll, you know, Twitter once a year, twice a year when I talk about, you know, the uh, triple threat is dead. And everybody who we, you know, growing up learns triple threat. And we don't really see that much these days. Only like the stars like LeBron who want to bring the whole damn offense to a halt will catch the ball and hold it and jab step and all those things. Most everybody else is attacking on the catch, run and catch, split and go. Um, and those are the really important skills that I teach all the time. And by the way, out of all of that, um, there is a notion at some point for some of our uh, moves on attacking the catch that kind of mimic uh, triple threat. So that we I don't have to spend any time on triple threat. If they don't attack on the catch and they don't get an advantage and they have to hold it, then they can naturally flow into that without having to waste time doing all the jab step stuff and all the static, you know, you know, static uh, attack drills. And so as a result, that's probably the best part about the game is because you know, the ball moves more, the players move more, the defenses really have a hard time catching up. And that's the uh, that's the other reason why we need, you know, some radical new defensive techniques. 
Yeah. So when you're coaching, especially, you know, younger kids, maybe the AAU level, the high school level, what are some important things that, that you think that they need in their toolbox that will make them a solid player, like a good player that can potentially go D2, D1? What are like the key things that you think that, you know, these young players need to add to their toolbox that you see in the NBA, you know, really prevalently? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I start everything I do. I'm working with an AAU team now is, is attack on the catch, mm-hmm. learning how to lift both feet in the air at the same time. And by the way, that's the secret of basketball lifting both feet in the air at the same time. And then that allows you, and that, that, that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. That could be a uh, dribble, uh, skip dribble. That could be gallops. It could be hop into a shot. It could be split and go all the ways of lifting both feet and then using the ground reaction forces to explode into a different direction. It's what all the elite athletes did naturally. And no one taught uh, until we finally had like HD video. We could go frame by frame and realize like, what are they doing that these other people who are quote unquote, non-athletes are, can't do now you might not get those you know non-athletes to be as quick as the the elite guys but you can unlock 30 percent more you know uh, uh production from them and at that point you get the the field gets a little bit more level and then you can re- work on all the other skills in terms of the ball handling and the shooting so so attacking on the catch is the big one and then uh obviously shooting you know being able to shoot from distance and have proper rhythm is is the most important thing. I tell all the people I work with, I, I'll, I'll you know after a little while I'll say, okay, now who is the best shooting coach for you? And a lot of times they'll say me, which is very nice, but it's not the right answer. Or they'll say some other coach, whatever. I'm like, no, no, no. You are your own best shooting coach. You just need to be willing to listen and listen to what your body is telling you, and be willing to accept that and then adjust depending on what you are telling yourself. So I try and be that conduit and help them understand specifically what their bodies are telling them, because we used to say, well, everyone's different. You know, you can't and not everyone's going to shoot the Clay Thompson shot, but then you'd have coaches still try and do that anyway. Right. Like you have these ideals. I've gotten so far away from that and unlocking just a couple of very specific things for everybody that it really helps get people. The 19 foot nine three point shot line is you know, it's just a, uh, it should be a mid range to this point. And the, everyone, if you want to develop that outside shot should be, you know, feet behind there, that gives you more time. You're more open. And once you unlock the correct rhythm, then you can do that effortlessly. So I, I had 10 year olds shooting 19 foot nine threes without having to throw it because you can teach them exactly how, uh, exactly when to lift their arms up into the shot in conjunction with when they're straightening their knees into the jump. It's not hard. Um, takes an eye for detail and you have to accept that that's what it is. And then I, as a result, I used to like, torture players. I used to be pulling and yanking on their, on their wrists and their elbows and their shoulders. And I, now I'm like, okay, I want proper alignment. I want proper rhythm. Everything else is how you do it. And that's, that's really opened up a whole, you know, a whole new, um, uh, you know, in, uh, the environment for just nailing outside shots. So yeah, I think that, with that's the, a, yeah, ahead, yeah, no, honey, please. I was going to say that's really refreshing take to hear because I feel like there's a lot of videos I've watched on like YouTube of like people learning how to shoot a, a free throw three pointer. And they're like, yeah, you have to have your arm at this angle and, you know, you have to like shoot it the exact same way. And I've even seen, you know, people like Jimmer Ferdet now has, has a TikTok channel where he's kind of teaching shooting, where he's also been a bit more of like kind of, kind of your, your way where it's not necessarily about the angle or it's not necessarily about, you know, the exact like way you're doing it, but the rhythm of it and, you know, that's really oh. refreshing to hear. So, right. Well, the funny thing with Jimmer, he always had a kind of a bad hitch in his shot. Yeah. And um, the way I, and, and we, we never really understood how to get rid of hitches. And now I think we finally understand what that is. And, and as a result, we can now eliminate those. I don't ever see those anymore with the kids I work with. And uh, it's been a real 
a pleasure to, to not have to see that because we understand now about, you know, the rhythm, which is, you know, basically the timing of the, the ball up into the arm swing into the shot. Before that, you know, we just sort of had the notion of you bend your knees, lift your arms, and then, you know, let me have an elbow snap and wrist snap. But that was, we didn't understand, you know, when to start all those things up. And now that we do, yeah, it's been exciting to eliminate. Now, you know, the, the other thing we work on with the shooting is the, the, the turn. You know, everyone was taught 10 toes pointing directly at the rim, be square to the basket. And it's not how any of the good shooters ever shot it, ever. And um, now that we understand that, we don't have people who have elbows that fly out so far. And because, and the reason why they would fly out is because they're trying to have, you know, square to the basket and they're simply with the way their shoulders are made and the elbows, they cannot get their, the, um, the flexibility to get the elbow underneath the ball. So they have to then the elbow shoots out or they get all sorts of crazy stuff happening. Like, you know, uh, Joe Ingles is a good example of that. And, uh, you know, he's made it work, but man, it, there, there, there tends to be a little bit of an aesthetic value I like to place on a jump shot, even if you can kind of get it to go in. And so when the guys go like Derek Fisher and Joe Ingles start doing that stuff, it makes it, I still shudder, even though I know that they're, you know, they were both uh, very good three-point shooters. So it's nice if you can kind of also make it look, look pretty good while you're working on it. Yeah, I mean, even guys like Richard Jefferson, like watching them shoot, like it's just always it looks really awkward. And, you know, like more often than not, it'll go in like they'll be like 38, 39. Wait, Richard Jefferson had a weird jump shot. He had a hitch forever. Oh, you know what? It's on my mind. I can't even remember now. It's been so long since I've seen him shoot. OK, he, he, yeah, I mean, it It went in. I just it, his shot always looked really awkward to me. But I mean, speaking <laughs> on the three point shot, like I, I, I haven't looked into this, but. For guys who are usually picking up the primary defender or like they're the primary defender on the primary offensive player and they're tasked with contributing on offense as well, like from deep, like these three and D guys, is there any correlation between guarding the opponent's best player and diminished three point percentage? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, you know, there is a notion that you're more tired because you have to work so hard on the other end that when you come down, uh, you know, but, but uh, invariably when you watch the three and D role in the offense. It's like, what do they do? They just stand there and they wait for the kick out, right? Those guys aren't going to be doing anything off the dribble. So in theory, they could kind of get their legs back underneath them before they have to shoot it. But I haven't seen any kind of data related to that, which would be very interesting to see. And, um, and then, but then what would you do with that? Right. It's like, then what, you're not going to shoot it after a really particularly tough defensive possession. You know, it's interesting. And I think the solution would probably be, okay, we're going to make sure we work on shooting with you when you are that tired. Right. And by the way, that's the other whole big part of this thing that they, they don't measure as well as the fatigue issue, which gets exacerbated by certain really old school techniques where, for instance, they'll have coaches who tell you to be shot pocket ready and you're kind of bent at the waist, you're bent over and you're bent, your knees are bent low. Um, all you're doing in that position while you're kind of waiting several seconds for the ball is tiring your quads out. And then you got to try and make the shot uh, and you're not in a good athletic position to do anything else. Um, those are the things where it actually becomes detrimental to unlocking the full potential of a player. And, um, you know, the, the thing about having a rhythm and it being and being comfortable is it should be tantamount it should be the most important thing when they're in a game, because that's, what's going to allow them to achieve, you know, any kind of flow state perhaps, or their best, you know, physical performance. And by, by putting them in these awkward situations where they, that they, that they think are sort of fundamental, uh, it actually ends up being detrimental. And it's, it's kind of, it's, it's soul killing when I see it. There's so many three and D guys and so many, like even players like Paul George, who like, they're also responsible for like primary offensive creation and, 
it's just such a taxing toll to, you know, do both of those things really effectively. So I, I completely well, Michael you. Jordan never complained. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he shot the three as much though. I think it was all like, well, he was a mid range kind of guy. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's for sure. But there, nobody played harder than him and he did it for 40 minutes a game and both sides of the floor. But I mean, th- th- I will say this, there is analysis apparently I've heard uh, that, that links like, you know, playing like too hard on defense and injuries. So something about like, you know, you want to coach them to play really hard on defense, but, and, and part of the reason why I understand that is because if you coach, sometimes there are too many coaches that coach to have like a shutout, right. And they wig out whenever the other team scores as if they're not going to do that 25 more times in the game, right. It's going to happen, you know, and, and there's no sense in making your players insane by screaming, yelling and carrying on because, you know, they happen to score. They're going, that happens. Um, but as a result, the mindset sometimes becomes, I'm going to have to do 120%. So what happens now? I'm, I'm going too fast. I'm out of control. I'm not balanced. Okay, now what happens? I bang into people who are not, you know, I'm expecting them to be there. Well, then, okay, then I get the knee injury or I fall and I hurt my wrist or I, you know, or, or repetitive injury of falling, falling, falling. You know, you watch Anthony Davis fall every time he's on the floor and then you don't, you don't have to wonder why he's constantly injured. So um, that's another, that's one thing that they have made a connection to where, you know, it's not about like 110%. It's like, it's like going at 85% and then working to make that quicker, you know? So you're always at 85, but then your skill level improves to the point where that's 85 is just quicker in terms of raw measurements. That's the difference of when you're talking about coaching and approaching this and how to, how the modern coach should do these things versus the, the caveman uh, Neanderthal things that I, you know, I'm constantly calling out on Twitter. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. I mean, when when you talk about that, like just on a personal level, who's your favorite like player or team to break down, like watching all these things like and mm. what is it about them that makes it so enjoyable to break them down? Well, I mean, you know, not long ago, I did one on uh, an offensive play that the Raptors ran, which would look like a football play. And um, and that was really fun. And it's always fun to watch, you know, Nick Nurse's stuff, because he's a guy that's been around the world coaching and had a coach out of a paper bag. He didn't have elite athletes all the time. He wasn't a former NBA player that got to, you know, somebody took over a team that had three, three all stars, you know, and that kind of thing. So, uh, I, I mean, I certainly gravitate toward those kind of coaches who, you know, who've gotten really creative with it and really trying to push the boundaries. And then also on the same, on the same front, get the players to buy in and do that and, and actually execute it. Now I, I interviewed Fred Van Vliet at one point. I said, you know, why are you guys so willing to do these crazy zones? He goes, well, they work. <laughs> He's like, if they didn't work, then, you know, he'd be in trouble. We would have a hard time, but they work, they get stops and, and, you know, and he can then, you know, they can, you know, high five each other knowing, Oh, we, we, we did something unique. Um, so I, I definitely gravitate toward his stuff. I mean, I love watching the warriors run their offense because it's such a ballet and, um, you know, that, that's, that there's obviously something pleasing aesthetically to seeing, you know, lots of ball movement, lots of player movement into an open three, you know? So those are those two teams that I really like to watch a lot of, um, I think I like to watch Miami, but they were really frustrating <laughs> against the bucks, uh, down the stretch. Um, but I certainly like how they also encapsulate like a lot of the old school, uh, you know, uh, sort of um, pinch post action where you, you know, you throw the ball and you follow it for the handoff back. That's what Duncan Robinson does a lot of to get, you know, threes or he'll get in the air and then he'll throw the ball, you know, after showing the shot. Uh, all sorts of really creative, clever things like that. I mean, my favorite all time play is the fake handoff. 
And we see Draymond do that probably the best, but we you know a lot of guys are doing that now that a lot of handoffs are in the offense. So I have those little favorite nooks and crannies of like, you know, actions I really love. Um, so that's probably the best one, you know, there's nothing like a good back door, <laughs> you know, off of a high post entry or something. So, but, and again, those are all right out of the thirties and the forties. And that's what's so exciting. And, but instead of a layup, you know, you're going to get a reverse dunk, double pump, you know, whatever, which is even, even better. Yeah. So I have a question in terms of the rule change. There was a rule change this year that was supposed to sort of, you know, limit the the number of fouls when you, you put your hands straight up, right. In terms of shooting fouls. And I think in the beginning of the season, it kind of did a little bit. I'm not sure how much that's true as of now. I watched a couple of games last week and I was like, ah, you know, but <laughs> have you noticed any any changes in, in the way that teams are trying to draw fouls on offense? I know that Chris Paul talked about it on, on the podcast with JJ Reddick about yeah. the specific rule change, but I mean, have you watched, you know, while watching film this specific season, have they done anything, any creative things to potentially yeah. draw some fouls or? For sure. Well, we, we don't see the shot fake and then, you know, s- jumping sideways into a guy in the air to try and draw fouls. I don't think I've seen that in a long time, you know, since the beginning of the year. I know Steph tried it and they called it on him or yeah. I didn't give him the foul and then he's like, okay, I got it. Um, but I don't think anyone would have thought that because of those rule changes, basically the the, in, the initiation by the offense into the defensive player, uh, eliminating that or, or potentially an offensive foul. Uh, I don't think anyone would have thought that because of that, the the defense got to be a lot more physical. And that's clearly the case on drives. Um, and I think that everyone's liking it. Yeah, the players don't like it. Uh, Harden does not like it at all, um, but he's missing other shots anyway. Although all of a sudden he gets to Philly, right? And he's like the, the old Harden. He's he, I don't know how you get how you get into shape in like seven days, but like maybe what was he doing all season long? Because you had to be pretty unhealthy, an unhealthy lifestyle to like turn it around. And, set, and then if you went completely healthy in seven days, juice cleanse, whatever, like maybe, maybe you could do it. I don't know. But anyway, the point being that um, it's a lot more physical and I like it because now the defense has a chance. They can actually feel like they can, you know, rotate over, can try and contest shots, uh, you know, try and stop the ball a little bit better. And I think that the fans have responded to that. And it's just a question of, you know, how well the the offensive players are going to adjust. And I think so far they have, I, I you know what I need to do is check the, like the overall average percentage around the rim. I would suspect it's gone down. I, I don't think, um, I don't think it's gone up uh, at, at the very least. And you have to imagine it's a lot of it's because of, of that. And I think in the first half of the year, the guy would go to the basket and like, you know, a little contact, whatever. And he'd miss and they get the rebound and go. And like, everyone kind of looked around thinking like, there's no foul. I don't whistle. Okay. Let's go. Like everybody, even the defense was like shocked. And now that they've gotten to that point where they're just, they're ready to go and get that ball and get out. And I think that that's, uh, you know, uh, been a much, uh, a big lift for the interest in the game. I think there were too many whistles and too many stops to play and we're, and we're getting through that. We're talking about the percentages around the room. And I think that's what, like, like I've seen a lot of John Morant recently, just because he's, he's been awesome, just unbelievable yeah. talent. And well, the fact that he's in like what top five, top six in the league and rim finishing is given all these like updated defensive rules and like they're not calling as much contact. That's unbelievably impressive to me just watching him. Right. Well, I mean, what's interesting is, is look at what his percentage is compared to what it was. La- the leader was last year or the two years before that, because um, he, he'll he miss him, too. And he gets contact. I'm worried for him every time he goes up because he gets up so high and there's so much 
you know, distance to travel back down to earth, uh, you know, as he's orbiting, you know, the planet. So, uh, but man, there's nobody more, more exciting than him. I mean, he is on the level of Iverson and, and Jordan and, um, you know, those guys who could really get up. Um, and you just have to hope that he learns how to land properly. Uh, and I think he, he has a sense of that. And, um, and, you know, if he gets into a, a, the bind where there's feet underneath him and it's whatever, he can dissipate that energy better and kind of fall to the floor and not like, you know, tear up a knee or tear up an ankle. So, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating to see that those kind of things um, and how that, that plays out. But uh, without question in my mind, yeah, I think that the uh, overall percentage need, it has to be lower this year just because of that. Yeah, like a, a final question for you. Um, for someone who's really interested in coaching, you know, they might have played in high school, might have just been really involved in the game growing up but they don't really know where to start what would your one piece of like guiding advice be well i mean I, how i started was pretty not a bad way to do it i went back to my old grammar school and i volunteered and you know i had played there and i knew you know and it hadn't even been that long it was right out of college so it was it was you know let's see that was 22 when i graduated when i was 14 you know it's only eight years later right some of the teachers were still there um, you know, so I was able to do that. And actually I was able to actually, you know, coach the seventh grade team, you know, sort of on my own, but I was also an assistant. So, you know, at the very least, if you didn't really know a lot, uh, if you go to your old grammar school, like volunteer and see if you can help and like, you know, be part of a, uh, you know, run a drill here and there and be part of the staff. And then, you know, sit on the bench. That's a really good way to learn at that level uh, without a lot of pressure to, you know, to start. Now, obviously there are, uh, you know, so many different like uh, resources in terms of videos and books and on how to learn more of the game. Um, I, like I mentioned, I think before the history of the game is really, really important. And I have all these amazing old books from the twenties and the thirties and the forties. I poured over them. And that's, I'm telling you, it's a really great way to kind of learn the basis of where the game began. It helps you get all the way to where we are now and you'll recognize a lot of the patterns. So it actually is, it's actionable intelligence for right now. Um, so it's another really good one is, is, you know, go to the library or try and find online. They're, they're there, they're out there, you know, old books by some of the, you know, the greats, like even like Fog Allen, who's at Kansas for all those years and the, you know, coach Wilt, um, you know, uh, Naismith won't have anything. He didn't have strategy. He just invented the game. Um, but Fog Allen was the first guy. And then, you know, you have guys like, um, uh, Bobby Knight and he's written some stuff and Pete Newell is another one of those stalwarts who knew Pete Newell coached at Cal. And, you know, the last eight times he played UCLA against John Wooden, Wooden could not beat him. And um, he he retired just before the UCLA dynasty. But even still, Pete Newell's um, writings on the basketball are still to this day terrific stuff. And he had a really keen insight. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, what I did was I would just, you know, I would accost Tex Winter. You know, like Tex Winter was there. I went and I pulled him aside. He was the nicest guy in the world. And he became, he gave me his phone number. We started talking, you know, find coaches that you know, or that you don't know, like that, that you respect that are, you know, they could be, they could be even big names for all, you know, and, um, and, and reach out to them and see if they'll respond. I, and, and then if you can't like, you know, go one step lower, go to the college coach you might know nearby and see if you can't, you know, connect that way. Uh, it's another good way to do it. And I think you'd be surprised at how willing most coaches are to, you know, to, to give whatever they know to other, other people. I mean, it's, that's the best part of the job. Well, we really appreciated your time. Like we got so much out of this and I think, for our listeners, like it really helps hearing all of this. So thanks so much again for your time. This was awesome. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. And uh, as, as we say on my channel, I'm in.
catch coach Nick b-ball breakdowns basketball breakdowns uh what's your Twitter handle is it b-ball breakdowns or is it yeah, it's b-ball breakdown everywhere yeah. IG Twitter perfect it makes it easy yeah and yeah I mean as again me and Shree have said Co- coach Nick has have has had some really really ama- amazing breakdowns and you know you're pretty funny on Twitter as well I remember you roasting who was it Tristan Thompson trying to do the hook shot the other day that, that was yeah. pretty that was pretty entertaining I so <laughs> yeah. If, if you want to be an NBA Twitter, you're a good person to follow for sure. But yeah, appreciate the time. And yeah, hopefully we can get you on the pod soon to, you know, maybe discuss some more specifics. Uh, maybe the playoffs start. We'll, we'll see what happens then. But absolutely. I'm in. Perfect. Right. Thank, Thank you, so, you much. so much.